You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Again, if you would, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We are about to look at a passage of Scripture that is called uh, the Sermon on the Mount. The word uh, mount is fairly prominent uh, with regards to the Sermon in Matthew's Gospel. Um, Luke seems to call it the Sermon on the Plains, uh, which is different, but we find a lot of the the content uh, of the sermons in Matthew and Luke uh, together. Uh, are the same. So they're, they're really the same sermon. And I want to talk about that next week. This, this week, we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 6, and we're going to begin at verse 12. And it begins on a mountain. That's the beginning of the passage. And then as we make our way, uh, beginning at verse 12, the, the end of our, of our section in verse 19 ends on the plain. So we kind of have this, this uh, movement uh, through the verse, and then next week I want to I want to preach uh, just an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. So that's next week, just to just to introduce this uh, sermon. Uh, so the verses 17 through 19 we're going to look at again next week. But your Bible should be open to Luke chapter 6, verse 12. And you little theologians, uh, I want you to draw a landscape for me. I want you to draw a mountain, and I want you to draw ships at the base of that mountain, which means you're going to have to draw water too. And I'll explain where those ships come from uh, as we make our way through this text. I'll be very clear about that. But a mountain with uh, ships um, uh, beneath the foothills of that mountain. Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 12, that's what we're going to look at. Uh, let, me, uh, let me pray that the Spirit would be with us in our study of His Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we uh, ask that You would readily appoint Your Holy Spirit to teach us. And Holy Spirit, we're grateful for Your willingness to do this, that we would know and praise the Heavenly Father all the more. And Jesus, we're grateful for your perfect righteousness that opened the door for the Spirit to come to us, to teach us. And so we are grateful for you, God, for you, Holy Spirit, for you, Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen. Luke chapter 6, from 12 all the way to 19. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray... And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came near to him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him 
and healed them all. This is the word of our Lord. I know everyone here knows what the word foreshadow means. It's a hint of something that's coming later. Uh, As we look at this period of Jesus' ministry, He has yet to say clearly to His disciples, uh, not only that He is the Messiah, but He has yet to say to His disciples uh, that He must suffer and die on a cross. Now, He's going to. In fact, He's going to three times. But He hasn't done that yet. And it might seem as though there is an enormous cloud around what exactly is the point of this man? Why is he here? What is he doing? And I want us to look at this passage and see in it a foreshadowing of Jesus' ministry to not just his disciples, but to all those whom he is preaching to. We've been told on at least two occasions at this point that Jesus has come to preach And he says, I must go and preach. But when we see this scene here, I want us to understand that even at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the very beginning, the calling of his disciples, uh, we see his saving purposes foreshadowed. There are glimpses in the scene that there is more than just a man who has come to teach. There is a man who has come to save in this scene. And so that's what, I, that's what I want to train our eyes and our hearts on. In this scene, we are seeing the foreshadowing of the saving purposes of our Savior. And I want to talk about three things. I want to look at the devotion of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and the ministry of Jesus. So there, there's the sermon outline. I want to begin with that first verse, verse 12, the, the devotion of Jesus. When uh, we, you know, we have the, a luxury that the disciples don't, we can actually skip forward to that, that last meal that Jesus has with his disciples in uh, John chapter 13. And at that meal, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And when he washes their feet, he says, I've given to you an example. And he wants them to look at Jesus as an example. As he has served them, they then go and they serve others. And I think that that's a very ready and accessible way to understand the devotion of Jesus. Jesus prays. And so you should pray as well. Here is your great example, and this is what he is doing in verse 12. He is going up to the mountain and he's praying. And Luke is the gospel writer that gives us the most pictures of the prayer life of Jesus. We've seen two already. Luke is the only gospel writer that says that at Jesus' baptism he was praying. And Luke has also already told us once before that Jesus has gone off to a desolate place, a lot of translations will say, some will say wilderness. We find this in Luke 5.16. And what does he do? He prays. And Luke is telling us that Jesus is a man of prayer, and indeed he is, and you ought to pray as well. You ought to pray as well. But there's more here than the prayers of Jesus. Luke is telling us something about Jesus' devotion that we're to see is more meaningful than our devotion. There's something going on here, something more. And in fact, we could say that there's something rather odd. Who goes up onto a mountain and prays all night? 
I get it. We're Alaskans, and maybe there are people here who go up into the mountains all night and prayer is a part of that time. I, I get that. I know my context. But it would have been very strange for Jesus to go and disappear on a mountain and pray all night. Now, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is going to do that again, but he's going to bring three disciples along with him, and that is a very strange occasion indeed. One wonders if this is the habit of Jesus going off into a very very dark, lonely, scary place and praying. But when you think about mountains in the Bible, they're very important. Mountains are places where God meets with His people. Now, I am not making an argument for you to ignore the the body of believers on Sunday and to go up into the hills and pray to your God, and it's justified in Scripture. You're closer to God there than you are here worshiping with brothers and sisters. I am not saying that at all. I think Hebrews 13 says the very opposite. You ought not neglect fellowship with your brothers and sisters. However, when we look in Scripture, we see that these mountain prayers are significant in the story of redemption. Mountains are where God meets His people intimately. Israel is led out of Egypt in the Exodus, and God says, I am taking you to a place where you will serve me. And they go to Sinai, and Moses meets with God at Sinai. The people stand around the foothills, and they're terrified. No one wants to go to the top of the mountain, but God speaks to Moses there. Interestingly enough, uh, God speaks to Elijah also on a mountain. Now that passage where we uh, hear that that God speaks to Elijah in a whisper or in a still small voice, it is a mountain scene. In fact, it's Mount Horeb, which many scholars believe, and I'm one among them, that that's the same mountain as Mount Sinai. God speaks on mountains. And pretty soon, Jesus is going to take James and Peter and John to the top of a mountain to pray overnight. And who will be there with them? Moses and Elijah will join them. And what Luke is saying to Theophilus and to us is that Jesus has a close, intimate relationship with God. He willingly goes up the mountain that he might spend time with God. So closely attached is he to God. So tight is that relationship, and we ought to see in that, that for one who is so intimately connected with God, that he goes to a mountain to pray with his God all night, that that intimate relationship is the same intimate relationship that is broken at the cross, and Jesus is separated from his heavenly Father as he bears the wrath and the penalty which we deserve. It's a great separation because Jesus and God have a great intimacy. And Luke, as he's telling us this, he says that Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray, to be with God, to fellowship with God, to commune with God. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus comes down from the mountain. And I believe Luke wants us to see in this Jesus being our willing advocate. Moses comes down from the mountain that he might share with the people God's revealed will. And Jesus comes down from the mountain that he might 
continue God's plan of redeeming His people through the body of His only begotten Son. Jesus comes down from the mountain. And when I say that His saving purposes are foreshadowed, I say that this fellowship that God has with His Son is a fellowship that He's willing to decimate for the sake of the salvation of His people because God is going to punish this Son with whom He has an intimate relationship with. And this Son knows it. And when He comes down off of that mountain, He is coming amidst sinners. And he does that just as willingly as he climbs the mountain to be with his perfect heavenly father. There's a hint here. This Jesus is my intercessor. He goes to the mountain and he returns to me. That he might save me, a sinner. That he might bring the plan that God has for my redemption to me. Indeed, that he would perform all that that plan requires. He goes up to the mountain with his father, and he returns to me, a sinner. There's there's devotion in the prayer life of Jesus, but Lucas is telling us something more. Let Let me continue with that theme of this being a foreshadow of something far greater by switching gears and moving to the mission of Jesus, verses 13 through 16. And here's where I want you to think about ships. Because Jesus is going to call His disciples, these twelve apostles. It's not the only thing He does. As He comes down, Jesus shows that everything is in His control. Notice what He does in verse 13 when He comes down from the mountain. Jesus is entirely in charge. You see all of these verbs that flow one after another. And Jesus is the actor of all those verbs. He's the one that's, that's doing all of this. He calls His twelve. He chooses them. You know, Mark in Mark chapter 3 adds this, that Jesus desires them. Luke tells us He calls them. He chooses them. Mark adds that he desires them. Luke goes on and he says that he appoints them. Mark says twice that Jesus appoints them. But he appoints them and he gives them the title. It's not a name, right? Because they already have names and were given all 12. But he titles them apostles. This is when you need to think about ships because it's a nautical term. How funny that he should come down from the mountain onto dry land, from dry land to dry land, and use a nautical term. When he calls them apostles, he's calling them uh, emissaries or messengers. And this would be the term that uh, a general over a navy would use as he sends out ships. He sends them out bearing messages, notices. And, and that's what Jesus does. He actually comes down off of the mountain and He calls these guys ships. Isn't that a beautiful picture? What's in their title is their action of being sent. They're to go. And Jesus, the one who loves to preach, has preached often, Luke has told us, and has said that He, he must go preach. He now sends out ships we begin to see that there's something that is happening here in this plan of redemption. That Jesus calls these twelve around Him that He might then send them out to carry some precious cargo, something significant. 
And we kind of make this jump to that nautical terminology and we see that it's the owner of the ships sending the ships out with his own cargo, his own message. And the men themselves are actually very common. They don't stand out very much. They, they're all relatively simple men. Uh, all of them are Galilean. They're not from a significant part of the world, even to those who live in this part of the world at this time. Uh, Judas maybe is not a Galilean. He might be the only one. But there are simple, common Galileans. And Jesus gives them the title of apostle. He is using them for his own purpose. It's almost like he is uh, taking as raw materials things that don't need to be taken and ought not to be used for any special use at all. And yet Jesus does that. He does it. Judas Iscariot stands out, doesn't he? He seems like the odd duck. We know about his life, and Luke clearly knows. Luke tells us that this is the, the one who is the traitor, the betrayer. But Judas is right there, and it's, it's hard to see Judas in this mix right now, given what we know about him. But the preaching ministry uh, after the death of Judas is very clear that the disciples look back on the ministry uh, of Jesus and they know that Jesus chose Judas, but they also know that Judas was a man who was being used according to the definite plan of God, Acts 2.23 in Peter's sermon. That Judas is an oddball. How is it that he could be with these other men, be given that title of a ship to carry a message out into the world, but while we struggle to understand that, we need to understand this, that Judas somehow fits in God's plan. He's there for a reason. It's part of the story of redemption. He's there to serve a determined plan, and maybe, maybe that's where we stop. But we certainly notice that Jesus is calling to himself uh, 12 apostles, and he is like uh, boats pushing them out in the water. We're going to see this dramatically in Acts chapter 1, when the disciples go out into the world, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. But we see that here, don't we? Don't we see that here? He comes off of the mountain, and he sends out his ships let me add a couple of things. You know, we look at this scene and uh, it's, a, it's a pretty, almost a, a, a lyrical scene, but there is a shock to this scene that we probably don't pick up on. Uh, what Jesus is doing here is actually seditious. Let me tell you what I mean by that. You see, Jesus is actually building for himself a government. It's all well and good to be a wise teacher and for disciples to gather around you. You walk through the wilderness and people voluntarily follow you because you're just so wise. And they're following Jesus because he's wise. But it's actually seditious if you choose people, if you appoint people, if you give these people a job. This is exactly what the religious leaders are looking at and thinking uh, very nervously about. And Rome, if she knew, would also be nervous because Jesus, by giving people titles, is building a government. Why? Why would he do that? Mark chapter 3, you know what the mom and dad do, right? Jesus' mom and dad. 
very, very unimpressed with this. They actually say in public that Jesus has lost his mind. He's out of his mind. Now, so far as I've preached, you wouldn't have thought that. You would have thought, oh yes, this is what our Lord and Savior does. He appoints these apostles. But to the original context, he is going mad, it would seem, because he's building something. And he's not asking for Rome's permission. Isn't that great? He's building something. He is giving people titles, and he's going to give them a task to go out into the world. And what we begin to see is we begin to see that Jesus is truly doing something new. In Luke chapter 5, you remember he talked about new wineskin, and he talked about new cloth, and that the new is better than the old. And we begin to see that right here, that Jesus is doing something new. This is rather interesting. He is building something on earth. And he's building a body of men that will go out and proclaim a message that's not their own. He's building a government. He's going out with organization and authority. This is new, but we also know that this is God's plan. This is God's plan. The law and the prophets were to come and to teach up until the, till John the Baptist. And after John the Baptist, Jesus will preach the kingdom of God. That's Luke 16.16. 16. What Jesus is doing is going to seem very new to the original context, but this is the continuous story of redemption being unfolded more and more and more. Do you remember what happened when Moses came down from Mount Sinai? I think it matters here. Because Jesus seems to be doing a lot like what Moses did. He is going up to the mountain. He is speaking with God, hearing from God, and he comes down. And he is speaking now to those at the base of the mountain. Uh, Luke tells us in this very passage that they've all come to what? To hear him. Jesus comes down and he teaches. When Moses came down, Exodus chapter 24, he built an altar You think, well, Jesus isn't building an altar. Indeed, he's not building an altar. But when Moses did build an altar, he built an altar with 12 pillars that would symbolize the tribes of Israel. And this altar would be an altar in which Israel would bring her sin offerings, that a substitute would come and die for her sins. And Moses takes that blood, and you know what Moses does with it? He puts some of it in a basin. Do you remember Exodus 24? Do you know what he does with it? It's very odd. The writer of Hebrews 9 says that Moses sprinkles it on the Word, right? Because he has the Word. God has given given it to him, and he sprinkles it on the book of the covenant. But when you look at Exodus 24, what does Moses do? It's like Moses stands there and he hurls it. He throws it out over the people. Isn't that a beautiful... Oh, it's a little gross. But it's a beautiful image. It's Moses up there and he throws this blood that this blood of a substitutionary sacrifice would cover them. And Jesus, when he comes down from this mountain, what does he do? He doesn't build an altar, but he still represents the 12 tribes of Israel by calling to himself 12 disciples. But he doesn't build an altar. Why? Because he's that sacrifice. And they've not seen that altar yet. But he is going to die for them. But he does throw something, doesn't he? He shoves those ships out into the water. He throws a message, a message of grace. I am your only means of salvation. And he appoints these apostles that they would be the messengers that go out into the world and they proclaim this message. Do you see see things that are foreshadowed in this? It's far more significant than a man going up on, on the mountain to pray and coming down to preach. There's something more here. 
These men sail into the world bearing the message of salvation that comes through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The ministry of Jesus very quickly because I want to talk about this next week. What does his service to the world look like? Look at all the people that come. Verse 17 says that a great crowd of disciples, not just the 12, but a great crowd of disciples. And Luke goes on, I'm almost building intensity. He says, also a multitude from Judea and Jerusalem. Yeah, we get it. We have seen Jesus before, a multitude of Judea and Jerusalem. But look what else he says. People come from not simply Tyre and Sidon. Those are two cities, Tyre and Sidon, but actually the entire seacoast. That's a ways away. These people are coming from far to hear Jesus. And as they come, they're coming in their desperation. These are sick people. They're diseased and they need healing. They're, they're troubled, my translation says, the ESV. They're troubled and they need curing. What an amazing throng of people. Different races, different socioeconomic background, different ethnicity, different languages, but they're all hurt. They're all hurt. And they come that they might hear Jesus. And Jesus has the power to save, Luke tells us. They come because he knows he has the power. And when we look at this, I think it's instructive for us today. This is the ministry of Jesus. We're given a picture of it. We'll talk next week a little bit more. But there's a few things that are very instructive for us. And we should be clear, the ministry that Jesus has belongs to him. I mean, there's a part of it, right, that it's, it's solely his ministry. Only he can die for the people of God. Only he can sacrifice for them. But there is a ministry of Jesus that we actually share in. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you're Christians, you share in that ministry by going out into the world as vast as she is, as diverse as she is, and bringing forth a message of Jesus and his work. The message that these disciples are to preach is a message that Jesus believes can reach all peoples. But we know that his word is enduring, it is living, it never dies. And that's what we're called to do as well, to go out into this world and to preach the message of Jesus. And this is really good, right? Because we believe as Christians that all people need Jesus. It matters not in what part of the world you live in. It matters not your language. The gospel itself is translatable to your language. And everyone needs Jesus. But we also know that in this world, there aren't too many people who believe that they are hurt so bad, so bad, that they see that only Jesus can help them. The people that are coming to Jesus in this scene seem to be hurt so bad that they have no other recourse and oftentimes as we, as we share with others the hope that we have from being saved in Christ Jesus, we're not sure if the world is really hurt enough and ready to listen, to hear. But I want to remind you, they can be hurt. They can arrive at a point where they hear the gospel because you did. You did. You came to that point. We realize that there's nothing and no one that can heal me but Jesus Christ. How did that happen? I would venture to say that many of you were profoundly arrogant and boastful and thought that you didn't need anyone to help you at all, and yet you believed in Jesus. 
Why would you think that that's impossible for others, given the complexities of the world, given the confusion even of our own culture? Why would you think that the gospel suddenly now doesn't work because people don't seem to be hurting enough? You don't have a change of game plan. You have this message. And we're going to look at the preaching ministry of these disciples and we're going to see successes and failures, but they're faithful to God's living word. And they go out into that world and they have a message. And if you were broken enough or came to see your brokenness enough that you said yes to the gospel, maybe there are others out there. This is what Jesus is showing us. Because what he's teaching us is he's teaching us that his saving purpose is that the church would hold Jesus out to the entire world. And some are going to hear. Some might persecute you. But some are going to hear. These people came and they heard. In the New Testament church, the church grew by leaps and bounds. The gospel is proclaimed, and at one time, more than 3,000 people come to believe. And we might say, well, that's only revival, but the Bible doesn't tell us that it's only revival. The Bible tells us this is the way the kingdom of God works. God's people going out into the world and proclaiming the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. Some will see their brokenness to such a degree that they come, they listen, they respond, they believe. Some won't. But this is the ministry of Jesus that we're called to. We're going to look more, uh, more at this next week. But the devotion of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and the ministry of Jesus in this passage foreshadow His saving purposes. Living on the other side of the cross, we can see this very clearly. But I suspect Theophilus could see it clearly as well. Let's pray, and then we'll come to the table. Our Father, we're grateful for Luke's ministry to Theophilus and his ministry to us. Holy Spirit, we're grateful for the preservation of the word of our Heavenly Father. Now, Father, would you send us into this world uh, being encouraged to proclaim a message that is not ours, the message of Jesus Christ. Father, would you lead us at the table, that we would come to the table with uh, correct hearts, hearts that uh, are in an attitude of gratefulness for what Jesus has done. Thank you, Father, for drawing us to this table in Christ Jesus.